0: Yes. The this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the mailbag edition. That's right. You didn't think we were going to leave you without a Sunday podcast, did you? Of course not. It's Sunday. Well, it's not quite Sunday. Is that joke getting old yet, Doc? The whole recording in advance, printing at Sunday. Should we stop doing oh.
1: that?
0: Well, not really. I
1: think it's <laughs> some not cooler, that's cool
0: information. The voice you just heard is Dr. Anirban Mahanti, I'm Scott Phillips. We are bringing you a special mailbag edition of the podcast, as we do most weeks on this Sunday. It is pre-recorded, so again, if the world's, uh, well, I was going to say gone to hell in the meantime, but frankly, it's, it's already pretty tough. Um, uh, we'll start with a couple of questions, but I want to start with a couple of thoughts. First thought I want to start with is just to reiterate that we didn't do on Friday, and I, I, I've kind of felt not guilty about it, just kind of sorry I didn't do it. We're kind of having a couple of laughs as we go through this coronavirus stuff. Not so much because we think the whole thing's funny, because it's clearly not. Just because I, I'll say I'll say for me, and you can say for yourself. But you know, I, I try and be optimistic. I try and find a bit of fun in in things. Um, you know, going through going through tough times is just tough in general. If you can find something to have a chuckle about, even self deprecatingly, that's probably worth doing from time to time. So you know, we're not in any way, shape, or form uh, under. Uh, un- Underappreciating the seriousness of what's going on for people, and if listeners, if you're, uh, hopefully you, you're avoiding it, but if you've been infected or you have family members who are infected or simply worried about it, uh, we do we do extend you our sympathies, and, and hopefully this gives you something to think else to think about, maybe a bit of levity. Again, not because we don't care, but because we do, and, and we think this is one way we can go about helping our listeners as always, and maybe having a little bit of fun just to, to lighten the spirits along the way. So I just want to make that point, Doc. I, I didn't do it on Friday. You know, the, the health crisis is far far more important than any of the financial implications, but um just worth worth mentioning that just just a bit so we're, we're super clear yeah mate. um let's go on with the first question I, i've got um i'm gonna do a bit of a high horse halfway through just for fun i know it's a uh, mail i know it's a mailbag edition but since the last one i thought you know what i missed that high horse i'll, I'll throw that back out so if you're a fan of the high horse uh, just stay listening if you're not then i apologize in advance and i'll try and make it not too long mate the question is from sam and in this current environment uh, an issue that some people are thinking about. He says, uh, he asked us to be anonymous. I'll, I'll, I'll assume that Sam is the first name is okay. So Sam, if, if I've- if There I've are lots of, Sams, right? exactly, lots, <laughs> of, lots of Sams, right? Exactly. Lots and lots of Sams. Could be Sam Smith. It could be Sam Stozer, It could be, help me out here, mate. Do we know one of the famous Sam? Sam Sam. <laughs> Sam Sam. <laughs> Sam Sam. All right. Um, hey team, love the podcast and appreciate all the insight over this busy period. I have a question relating to hyperinflation. What is it? How does it occur- and what is the likelihood of something like this in Australia? Cheers and full on. Now, for those who've done a little bit of economic history or just simply read the papers every now and again, there's the famous kind of mental image. I've never actually seen a physical image, I don't think, of, a, a literal image of the wheelbarrows of cash being wheeled through Germany during the kind of the war years, pre-war years, I think it was, um, when, when the, the German Deutsche Mark was just completely destroyed. Um, we know that in I Zimbabwe, I think it got to a million percent a year that's fair to say hyperinflation. But let me let me throw it to you first, mate. after giving you a bit of color. What is hyperinflation? How does it occur? And what's the chance of it happening here?
1: Oh, that's a, well, that's a complicated question. I'll try to answer simply and then you can elaborate. So, I mean, hyperinflation, as the name implies, is basically just super fast inflation, yep. right? So, uh, inflation, typically we think, you know, goods and services, a basket of typical goods, their price increases, say, you know, we would want it to increase a little bit. You know, say 1% to 2% or something like that. Yep. Um, if, if that increases 10, 15, 20%, then that is inflation. And if it keeps increasing at that pace, and that's like hyperinflation, yep. really, like accelerating um, price. Um, why does it happen? Well, you know, okay, so one w- why does a lot of things, you know, wars, uh, a typical one, for example, World War. As you alluded to, is yep. is a typical scenario when things happen. If the government's essentially um, um, reserves go down, that that can happen. It basically is is a it's an underconfidence to some extent in what is happening in the in the country and how things might shape up. Civil war causes uh, hyperinflation, mm-hmm. um, and when this happens, what would typically happen is people would, you know, you sort of lose value in you lose faith in that currency, right? right? And if you lose faith in that currency, because effectively if you had $100 that you knew was going to buy you something today, mm-hmm. you know that in a couple of years it's not going to buy you that something. Now we sort yep. of have a rough picture of what it will buy us and in a in couple of years. Mm-hmm. In that case, you would not have a picture of what you'd be able to buy in a couple of years. And people tend to move towards um, safer assets. You know, mm-hmm. People try to you know switch their um currency to say gold because I think it's not going to inflate away like that or US dollars because it's not going to inflate away like that. Um, Yeah, so stress in government budget, uh, wars, uh, breakdown of society. uh, Those are sort of the reasons we would see hyperinflation. Yeah. So...
0: Yeah, the concern over the last ten years, Sam, has been been the old, the old money printing thing, right? So when when the U.S. government and then increasingly now Australian government is doing what they call quantitative easing, which the uh, skeptics or the, the critics will call paper money printing, which is when you basically just increase the supply of money in the economy or the amount of money in the economy, and in theory, if you have more money chasing the same goods, the average price of those goods will go up, right? Because you know if I have if I had hundred dollars now I've got a thousand dollars, I can afford to pay more. For, for those goods that I've got. And if you've got a $1,000 or another $100, you can afford to pay more for the goods you've got as well. And so we start to bid stuff up. And so all of a sudden, the price of a computer goes from $1,000 to $2,000 to $3,000 because it can. And because people who can charge more will. The problem is that becomes a spiral, right? So if that starts to cost more, then everything starts to cost more. And then you know it's, it's, that, it's that kind of economies are are wonderful things, but when they go into either you know irrational exuberance, to use Alan Greenspan's term, or or, or recessions or even depressions, is, is when that kind of cycle becomes self perpetuating in a really unhealthy way. And hyperinflation is kind of the same thing when prices start rising, they keep rising, when they keep rising, they keep rising, and you end up in this really big spiral. Once it takes off, it does take off. Um, how does it what's the likelihood of happening in Australia? Really, really low, but never impossible. And I only say that not because I think it's even likely to happen. There's a chance of it happening just because we can't rule anything out. Um, Germany didn't expect it. Zimbabwe didn't expect it. Venezuela didn't expect it. They all got it. So it's it's absolutely something we need to be mindful of. And that's precisely why in, in the US, particularly in the early 80s, uh, Paul Volcker, the, the then Fed Reserve Chief, who's now passed away, um, Volcker jammed interest rates up really high, really hard, really quickly, because he wanted to break the back of inflation to stop that risk of it getting out of control. So there are tools, in, in people's kit bags. Frankly, the issue with Australia over the last 10 years has been a lack of inflation rather than more of it. So um, deflation is as damaging as hyperinflation. And that's why this this path is a really careful path to tread. And it's why you know, we can disagree with central bankers, but the idea of central banks in general has been a really useful tool to curb the excess. There were many, many more recessions in the 1800s and early 1900s per year or per, per decade than there have been since. And in large part, that's because governments are getting cleverer, central banks are getting cleverer at keeping the economy to some degree on some sort of straight and narrow. Any more on that, mate? No, I have nothing to add, really. Good question, Sam. Next one's from Frank. Hey, Scott. Thanks thanks for everything you do. I recently listened to your Corona Hits Travel podcast, and you spoke about if the government gives Qantas a bailout, that they may buy a stake in the airline and the shares may become diluted. Forgive my lack of knowledge on this subject, but I'm a bit confused by today's update on additional liquidity from Qantas. All right. Um, it's probably an easy one I obviously wasn't very clear (laughs) at the time Um, the government was giving Qantas a free kick and version of free kick waiving $715 million worth of um, worth of fees that otherwise would have to have been paid that's now going away because they've simply said no that's okay don't worry about it just don't worry about it my argument was they should require um, a stake in the airline for that amount not they're going to not that they are but that's what the government policy should be so uh, now the good news, if you're a quantum shareholder, is uh, and Doc, you mentioned this to me yesterday. Um, the the Qantas have been able to actually raise some debt from from bankers, which I was phenomenally surprised about by promising they'll give them some planes if everything goes badly. Um, so that's I guess that's worth something to you. Um, and and there is no need at the moment for government money. I was surprised by that. I, I, great for quantum shareholders. I was pleasantly surprised. Shares were up. Quantaships up like 30% yesterday, I want to say. And this again, we're recording on Thursday. So, goodness, that's what's happened since. Um, but, you know, the Qantas has kind of dug itself out of a hole, at least for now.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, they, I think, secured it against some of the planes they actually own unencumbered, un- basically with those that were not financed or leased. And um, they actually got a pretty good interest rate, low interest rate, I think, somewhere under two somethings percent for it. You know, it was a 10 year uh, term. So, yeah, I, I was actually pleasantly surprised by that. Uh, I, I my initial impression was that you know they would need a government sort of bailout and government equity uh, injection, but you know looks like Qantas can actually sail through with higher debt. So, well done to Alan Joyce
0: nice um, and yeah look I think that's I I, I will ab- absolutely say again that if the government's giving money to commercial businesses they should require a stake in that business because as a taxpayer we deserve some potential of something back yes we're doing it because we think the airline's worth keeping afloat for a whole lot of reasons so I'm not questioning the reason we're doing it in this case um, but at least if we get something in return that would be a, I think a fairer deal doc
1: yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I think if the government is giving money, our money, everybody's money, then the government should be asking for something. I, I mean, I'm mean, The only little conflict I have on this is, I mean, if there's some conflict there between the shareholders and they don't want the money, and that causes you know some further distress, s- certain assets probably are required. Like we do need, you know, airlines in this country. We need a couple of airlines at least for the system to work, and right. um, you know, and we've got two good airlines that we rely on. So I think mm-hmm. you know there is there's that national need um, in in some sense, yeah. and you know we could always say we'll let some other airline come in and fill that void, yeah, uh, but. You know, having a national airline to some extent also, you know, allows us to exert some pressure if we want to evacuate people from somewhere for whatever reason. You know, again, it seems like it's an essential asset to have. So, we're a little conflicted, but I do feel that yeah, they shouldn't get a free cake because that's basically just a free kick. So it's not a hard
0: decision. Like it's, it's pretty just, easy yeah. to say if it's if Qantas needs the money, yeah, it's in. It's, yeah. yeah. Well, I won't, I won't rant too much. While I'm here, though. I'm going to jump my high horse because I can, because I will. We're about uh, 10 minutes in the podcast, a bit earlier than I expected, but why the heck not? Speaking of government policies, and that's what got me there, uh, I I wrote an email this week about my two least favorite responses to the current coronavirus crisis. Now, I will say, uh, um, I listened to a podcast. It was a Planet Money podcast, I want to say, uh, where they interviewed Neil Kashkari, who was in charge of some of the US uh, GFC responses, now a US Fed uh, regional Fed Chairman, not the Fed Chairman, but Chair of one of the regional uh, U.S. Federal Reserve Banks, um, who said that the key the key things right now are the speed and the size of the response, not trying to get everything absolutely right. I absolutely agree with that. So I'll say for what it's worth, um, I can. everyone can argue with what the government's doing on a financial basis when it comes to the crisis. There's always things I would do differently. I'm sure Doc would do things differently, but broadly, they're doing something. They're doing it reasonably quickly and, and with a reasonable amount of cash. I think we'll probably need more in the end, but I'll give them some, some credit for doing the right things. Um, and again, I, I say every time we talk about you know, politicians, it's not political, it's policy related. There are two issues I have with what they've done. The first is the quantum we've just talked about. And that's why I wanted to talk about it. Now, the second one is the absolutely disgraceful idea of letting people access superannuation to tide them over now when it comes to their financial struggles. Now, I'm not for a second saying we should do nothing to help those people at all. We should absolutely help those people because frankly, we're, we're a developed caring society. We have the means, we have the ability, we have the interest. We should do something to help people who are thrown out of work. Absolutely. The problem is if you're using superannuation to do it, you are robbing them You know, the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you're taking a heap of money out of their pockets to do it. At a time when we're giving seven hundred fifty million million to the airlines, at a time when we are allowing the uh, – we're giving you know, up to $100,000 to businesses to keep people employed. Again, I'm not disagreeing with those strategies. I'm simply saying we're happy to throw money, government money, taxpayer money at, at those things. And yet we're saying to people, if you lose your job and you need some cash, sorry, we can't help you, but feel free to raid your retirement to do it. I think it's a really, really terrible idea. Like I used the example of a, of a of a 25-year-old in the email this week who took $20,000 out of super over 42 years. So say like they're 67 by the time they retire. That 20, that 20 grand is worth 300, I want to say $60,000 if they take it now. So the 10, the 10, 20 grand they spend today on absolutely required things will cost them in retirement 360 odd thousand bucks. And by the way, if they lived to 85, this by definition would have been the last money they took out because it's money they no longer have. So when they'd spent the rest of their super, this 20 grand still would have been there. By that point, it'd be $1.16 million. And that's using a 7% compound rate by the way, which is way less than the share market. They use a lower number because some people have it in cash or property or some sort of balanced approach. So let's say 7%, $1.16 million by 85, for that money that doesn't get used for the sake of p- spending it now now if the government was to give the money as a welfare payment or similar to people 20 grand over 10 years would cost guess what 1900 bucks in total in interest given the government bond yield is currently less than one percent so we could pay that money off with structural change or structural recovery in the budget increase taxes if we need to over over short periods of time to make the to fix the government budget deficit when things get better but it might cost us 1900 bucks over 10 years for the government to borrow that money or they could take $1.1 million out of someone's retirement savings to let them use it now. It is just a horribly, horribly misthought approach. I understand the government concern about the balance sheet. I understand the concern about how we do it. I know the money is in theory there, but it really... It, it, blows a torpedo sized hole in the entire retirement savings system if you let people start to do this the whole idea of super was to take the burden off the financial pockets of the government in 20 30 40 years if you let people take the money out now for a short-term problem we could otherwise solve we are absolutely robbing not only people's futures but the government the future of the government balance sheet because we don't want to spend the money today i think it's an awful awful idea there are many many better ways to do it superannuation is not the solution how'd it go mate
1: I, th- I think you got a lot off your chest. Oh, I did. I feel so much better. Mm-hmm.
0: It's nice to have an opportunity to do that. Do you have a view? Are you, are you um, uh, this no, a view or, no, or are you going to leave me hanging on the branch here?
1: No, 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 no. <laughs> I, I think the comment on super is absolutely bang on. I'll, I'll add just one more thing. Why allow people, you know, why even create this policy where, you know, the market is like down what 30% or something. You, you're taking our stuff when market isn't further down. It just, you know, it's like… You, you get hit over the long term, you're also hit over the short term. It's like, it's a double whammy. So yeah, it doesn't make sense to me.
0: Nice, I like it. Thank you, man. Thank you for letting me rant. I feel so much better. Let's go to a question from Andrew. Real money advice from real people. Not just a couple of dicks with a Porsche. Get more at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, Andrew says, Hi Scott, I signed up to Shared Advisor in November. I'd like to say what an awesome product it is. I promise Andrew is not my brother. Um, My question is around currency risk with international ETFs like the NASDAQ 100 ETF. Would now be a bad time to buy a NASDAQ because the Australian dollar is performing so poorly? He says I'm keen to take advantage of the price drop. Or does that not matter as you are buying them in Australia? Does it only affect dividends? Thanks in advance, Andrew. Um, Doc, I think this is a really, really great question. We have kind of talked about it before, but we got a heap of questions through the the week on exactly this. a question from Tim. Hi Scott and Doc, a question for you and Doc on the podcast. Does the current poor exchange rate mitigate any benefit of buying US stocks on sale? Are you buying US stocks currently? If so, which ones? Nice, nice question, Tim. Um, so lots of questions about about buying in the US, mate. Another question. Um, hi Scott. Hope Doc, you know, this is Repeater. Hope you and Doc are well. I had a quick question about the USD/ASD conversion rate. With there being so many opportunities in the current market, is it worthwhile diversifying internationally or globally, given how weak the dollar is? Or would you just focus on local businesses? I've been keeping on a number of stocks in the US, but I don't know if it's worthwhile given the exchange rate. Would love to hear your opinion. Thanks, Peter. So, mate, a heap of, a heap of questions on the same sorts of sorts of ideas. Your thoughts, uh, uh, dollars well, again. It could be anywhere, but some of this podcast goes to where it was as low as fifty five earlier this week. It was sixty last night when I had last checked. I haven't even checked it this morning. Um, so thoughts, firstly, made about the Nasdaq ETF. Um, just, you know, is it is it worth buying now, given where the dollar is?
1: Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I think people. Um Think a lot about the dollar and the conversion. I actually don't think that much about the dollar and the conversion. But there's an interesting thing that I think people don't think about. So, and I think we talked about this in the other podcast. So, for example, at the beginning of the year, I was mentioning this. You know, the the U.S. dollar was, let's say, giving mm-hmm. you 1.4 uh, Australian dollars. Mm-hmm. Right now, let's say it's giving you
0: 1.7. So what? So to reverse that, it was about seventy something. US cents, now it's down to about 57, 58 US yeah, cents. Yeah, right.
1: So it sounds bad because, well, you know, the dollar has pulled back, our dollar has pulled back a lot, of, the US dollar has strengthened. But yep. if you actually owned US assets, right, those assets are actually on a AUD basis, yep. not that behind.
0: Right. In fact,
1: so so it's like, you know, it works both ways. It works in your favor. So it's like a bit like dollar cost averaging in that sense, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, um, if, you, if you actually owned... NDQ, then NDQ on a US dollar basis might be down something, but it's actually down mm. a lot less mm. today mm. on Australian dollar terms. So I think you know that's something to keep in mind when, yes, you, are, yes. um, when you own assets in other currencies. Now um, that's,
0: that would that would argue for buying those US assets when the dollar was higher, right? Because you've been, you've been advantaged by the fall. I guess what our questions are worried about is, with the dollar already so low, are we in for the reverse where the, the NASDAQ might recover in price-wise? But if the dollar goes up, we actually may wash away most or all of those gains.
1: Yeah, so what I was saying is basically, I think of this as a little bit of like a dollar cost averaging, right? So you buy, when it's low, you buy less. When you're buying, you know, when the dollar is higher, you're buying more and effectively just averages out. Um, You get the hedging effect on the reverse side. If if you own, let's say, you know, 100K in, mm. in US dollars at that point, that was actually mm. at that point uh, in January 1st, for example, it, it was worth only 140K. But now that 100K, even though it's less, for example, it has fallen back somewhat, um, that 100K is actually worth 170K today. So right. uh, I think you know it works on both sides. Um, I don't worry too much about the dollar. I mean, I would worry if it was an extreme number. Um, otherwise, I, I really, it is not a factor. In my consideration, largely large mm. because the, and the reason is very simple: whatever I invest internationally, I have no need of that cash for the next, say, ten years. Yeah, that's my um, horizon or way of thinking. I don't know where the currency is going to go. You know, mm. but if if some banks get into trouble, we could see like you know forty cent yeah right, right? If, <laughs> yeah, exactly i I mean, I mean you know things could get you know it looks like yeah, it's yeah, bad yeah, it could yeah. get a lot worse yep. um predicting currency movement is really really hard so mm-hmm. yeah i i i don't worry again you know as i've always said what i do is i look at businesses and i look at businesses which are, you know good businesses that i can get at a good discount
0: mm-hmm.
1: and yeah and i just buy based on that yeah, so nice. it's a, it's a, it's not a big consideration
0: for me. I really like your answer, mate, in terms of dollar cost averaging, actually. I think uh, look my, my personal view is so doc you've you talked about individual US companies before. I I think it would be it would be remarkable if the dollar doesn't end up higher than this on average over the next couple of decades. Just, just law of averages, right? Will it be lower at some point? Probably, yes. Will it be higher at some point? Almost certainly, yes. Um, will it be, you know, spend decent amounts of time above and below that? Yes. Um, you know, it, it will fluctuate, right? It just does. Now, it's not, like, it's not like shares that kind of tend to go up inexorably despite the occasional pullback. It is a relative measure, all currencies are. So by definition, it can't you know, go up and keep going up. It's going to hit some ceiling. Now, you know, during the GFC, we got to 45 cents. I think since then, the highest was $1.10. So if you think about that range and think, okay, well, where are we in that range? We're towards the bottom. And again, maybe this is permanent. Maybe this is temporary. We can't yet know. What I love about your idea, mate, of dollar cost averaging, I've never actually thought about it this way, which is I feel silly for not to think about it. But that's exactly how I think I would play it. But you need to decide that's what you want to do. I, I, would, I would speculate that if you were to buy a, a, a you know, If you would exchange now, and the dollar goes up to 75 cents, for example, from 60, just pick some easy numbers. And we did talk about this last time. That's a 25% loss you're going to cop between 60 and 75 because it's divided by the 60, not the 75. Um, That means you've got to do 25% better in the asset you choose in the US and the asset you would choose here to actually be ahead or or to break even, right? If the US asset goes up 40%, the Australian asset goes up 25%, you're actually worse off in Australian dollar terms because of the, the currency. Now, that's at that point. And to Doc's point, if you don't need the money for a long time, if you'd have had, and again, to Doc's point, investments in the US, you'd bought at some other higher price previously you could be selling now and, and do very, very nicely. In fact, ShareAdvisor, as as um, Andrew knows, recommended the NASDAQ ETF. And it's just a nice little way to kind of have a bit of a, a comparison to look at how that actually has worked in, in action. Now we didn't expect it, by the way, this is not me saying, look how smart we were. We, we picked it because of the, the currency. We didn't do anything of the sort. What we did do though, is we have recommended the NASDAQ ETF quite a few times over the life of ShareAdvisor. And during that time, we've had different currencies and different market returns, of course. I think that's really, really useful. So I'm just going to quickly grab the numbers up just by way of illustration. Um, it's not giving away too much to say we've recommended the stock, so I'll do that. We had three individual recommendations one in 2017, two in 2018. Uh, since then, the Australian market is down, including dividends, for all three periods between 2 and 14%. Yet the NASDAQ ETF is up between 30 and 64%. Because of the the benefit of both the share price movements, of course, and the currency, and so there is that that combination you need to be mindful of. Uh, but it's not a heap of heavy lifting for us. The largest gain of 64% is when the Australian market's been down 2%, and the smallest gain, while it's only 30%, the market's actually down 14 since that time. And so you do get that that relative performance. Now, that was helped by the currency, as I said. So I wouldn't I wouldn't personally only buy the Nasdaq ETF now personally, and document from view. I wouldn't necessarily buy it only now. Um, And with the money, I had to try and play the US market currency agnostically. I think I'd have to believe I was going to keep sending money to the US regularly and far, far more important than that, bringing it back at the time of my choice when I could afford to allow for the share price or the unit price and the currency to be in my favor.
1: Yeah, I don't have much. I'll just say that last week I bought a bunch of US stocks. Um, So I did actually convert and I bought... Did you send
0: money from Australia to the US? For those those shares, or was it? I sure you had in U.S. dollars.
1: Uh, Actually, I did send. Nice, okay, cool. There you go. um, Yeah, and actually, here's my rule of thumb: is I only buy those companies, those types of companies that I can't buy here. Number one. Number two is when I try to buy, I I generally look for sort of a higher margin of safety in the sense, like I have certain. I think this is a certain fair value, and if it's trading well below that fair value then that's worth a shot yeah. um and and i think that's the way i cushion um yeah and i you know again yeah so i did actually send money to and I, yeah. I didn't actually even flinch thinking about the dollar at that point because you know the stuff that i bought i thought well you know they look incredibly cheap um for if you take a five ten year horizon so
0: yep. yeah love it i think that's and look, and that's the other thing i think you know I say, I say very clearly, you have to believe that the share price is going to grow by more than the currency costs you over that period of time. But if you have that conviction, then absolutely you should go and buy that socket You know, we're talking about. Uh, it's harder with ETFs because they are going to be market performers, and generally speaking, over over medium terms, you shouldn't expect one market to do phenomenally better than some some other market. You may you may make that choice, and maybe you're even right. But generally speaking, it'd be it'd be unlikely because we tend to find, particularly the ASX moves to some degree in, in harness with the, the US markets because we just take our lead from there. Um, over extended period of time, you may be right, you may be able to make up that, but if you're buying individual companies and you are sufficiently right about the, the value of those businesses and you get the growth you're looking for, I mean, you know, a, an easy example, just I know I'd use it all the time. Doc, actually, give me the Apple one. What? So, if what what are kind some of the apples sort of high and low points over the last, you know, ten years? I mean, if you bought Apple ten years ago, it almost wouldn't matter what the currency did, right? Because it's gone yeah, up so much like, since.
1: Like, I mean, if you bought, you know, it, it would matter in the sense whether you got it like you know a fifteen bagger or a ten bagger versus right, like right. a seven bagger. <laughs> um,
0: that's and, a, that's know, a nice problem to have. Yeah,
1: it's, I would take that problem any day. So yeah, like yeah, if you're looking for the next apples, then you know whatever it is, it really, um, it doesn't. Matter that much. Of course, everybody wants to get the 15 instead of the 7. Yeah. yeah. But I'll take the 7 too. Yeah, like, I mean, exactly. I'll take the 7 any day. I'll take right. the 5 if I can get one. Uh, you know, so that's. Yeah, that's. A
0: 500% gainer is going to more than cover any currency move, yeah, it, put it that way.
1: Yeah, Like, I mean, that, that is pretty good.
0: All right. So that, that's that's the answer. Um, just be careful. Yeah, make, make sure you expect the gain to offset the currency. um and or do it you know I think dollar cost averaging I think it's a great idea I love I love that you suggested I'd, I never actually I should have because I, I love it for shares I never thought about it for currency but I reckon that's a great idea yeah
1: I think the, the thing that it doesn't work is I think what you can't do is you can't play the you know I think this is 20% undervalued and therefore I'm going to get out right. at 20% higher that yeah, exactly. sort of thing yeah. is much harder to do if you've got currency as well to I mean, deal that's with that's a killer Yeah, uh, that would be a killer yep. so you know if, like I'm looking at growth companies that are going to grow over a for a period of decade, yep. then it works.
0: Totally. Yeah, yeah that's other that's thing. The longer you hold for, the less currency matters. Yeah. All right, great questions, guys. That was three questions that we got to go through, so thank you very much. That was that was awesome questions. Okay, um, next question is from Craig. Craig says, Hey, Scott and Doc, my name is Craig, and in your last mailbag episode, you gave myself and my brother-in-law a pep talk with the current state of the market, which was great. My question is, I have what I think is a large position Ten times the value of my ASX holdings in my company share program, which I've been accumulating for the last five years. But seeing the crazy volatility at the moment, how much this has impacted their value, am I better off selling a portion of this once things have leveled out to diversify my portfolio? I don't want to stop my employee share program as they add half of what I contribute extra into the account for buying shares. Oh dear. Also I have an iPhone and have given you a five-star review. Unlike my misguided Android using brother-in-law. Love the podcast, guys. It's really given me the info I need to be confident to get into the market and has really made a huge impact in how I think about my finances. Full on. Craig, Craig, I'm just going to say I like your brother-in-law more than I like you. Um, I, I, don't feel, I, don't, I don't apologize for that. Your brother-in-law is a smart, smart man using an Android device, as he should. In fact, you haven't discovered the error of your ways. I'm sure it's just a matter of time. Isn't that right, Doc?
1: No, I mean, if, you have, if you're on an Android device, you don't even know where to go and write a review. It's that horrible. Uh, why would anyone do that? I mean, I mean, Scott, I'm trying to get Scott to see the light at the, you know, he's just stuck in such a dark tunnel that he can't even see the light. But anyway, some people I'm like i happy in my
0: dark little tunnel, leave me alone.
1: Well, you know, some people just like miseries, they like to hold on to miseries. But that's okay. So I'm not sure if you're on a good thing, brilliant (laughs) thing. Just continue.
0: I'm not sure if Craig's on Team Doc or Doc's on Team Craig. But in any case, you found you found some some love there, mate. He's got ten times the value of his share portfolio in a in his own company's shares. We can't tell him what to do. We certainly don't know the company. He hasn't told us what it is, and that's probably best for everybody. Um, What do you think, mate? Do you want to have ten times your share portfolio in a single company's share plan?
1: Well, you know this this is a hard one. Look. So a lot of things matter, like okay, so employer share plans also have various types of restrictions that they come with, right? So there, there are vesting periods, there are holding requirements, there might be liquidity issues. So it is really hard one. Well, personally, I would not like to have substantial chunk of money in, in any one company. It's just my thing, I can't, I would find it really hard i can see it again depends a lot on what the company is and you know how good you feel about that company and how you feel about their future and how you yeah so it's really yeah it is it's too much concentration is in mm. general not a great idea yeah, yeah but again this is really without knowing specifics uh, lot of specifics actually which again that which would veer from you know steer us away from general advice Um, it's really hard to actually make a comment on this that would be sort of my take
0: nice i i completely agree with that i think it's you almost never want to have one company that's worth 10 times the rest of the other companies in general anyway regardless whether you work for them so that's the first thing Second thing is, you've said before, Doc, talking about your Australian exposure versus US exposure. The fact you work here, you live here, you've got a house here, your family's here, so diversification is important. Um, Plenty of people who worked at Enron or Lehman Brothers had a whole lot of stock in those companies right before they went bust. And they were going up for a long time, and Enron Enron made a lot of millionaires until it made a lot of paupers. Um, Generally speaking, I think you it's hard, right? You want to believe your company's going to do well. You hope it does well for your own sake, but there's a lot of concentration. If you've got your entire salary, your in theory, your future salary, plus a share position that's 10 times the size of everything else, I would definitely diversify. Um, again, it's one of those situations where maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong, and you'll always kick yourself if it goes up, and you'll always thank your lucky stars if it goes down. Uh, but more more importantly, you don't want to be jeopardizing the potential for a comfortable retirement for the sake of a spectacularly great retirement, right? We'd all like that. If you, if you see me, look, Scott, you can retire in comfort on a, 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 you know a, a share portfolio that gives you eighty percent of your current wage, or you could you could gamble that to get a share portfolio that gives you double your current wage. Which one do you want? Right? There is there is no amount of money you could you could offer me to make me gamble with my retirement income. I knew it was a guaranteed eighty percent of my current wage. I knew that was absolutely going to happen. And I could gamble for more, but I might lose it all. It's just not worth it. It's just really not worth it. So if you've got a portfolio that's one position is ten times the others, even if it's the next Apple or Amazon, it may also be the next Enron or Ped- or Lehman Brothers, right? So um, I would just be I would just be a little bit a little bit careful of that, uh, and I would I would be selling down just because you owe it to yourself to not take undue risk um, in the pursuit of a very comfortable retirement. For those who are also heard me almost uh, describe Lehman Brothers as Peter Lehman you'll know I used to work in the alcohol industry and Peter Lehman wines are very nice wines <laughs> so there's a bit of a Freudian slip for you for the podcast alright mate next question from Samantha and I'm a huge fan of our female listeners thank you Samantha for listening thank you for messaging us I love our male listeners equally of course but um, I say every time I get or most times we get a question from a female listener I'm just stoked that, that women are taking control of their own finances getting involved and as I said before they are better investors than us blokes so there you go all right, Samantha says, Doc, Hi Scott and Doc, I love the podcast, obviously. Makes my train journey into work bearable. Your voice are so soothing. Sometimes I'm not even listening, but sometimes I am. It's a crazy time for share markets now. I've invested occasionally a few times, but I've never done so well. I kind of kept reading there, but the whole, like, uh, your voice is soothing. Sometimes I'm not even listening. I, is that soothing or is that just uh, causing sleep? Sleep? <laughs> <laughs> That's Gee. what I thought is too. It's a nice way of saying, Can you guys cure insomnia? That's awesome. I'm not sure. All right. Samantha, thank you for those kind words. I, I don't, maybe you're listening to a different podcast, I'm not sure. All right. Uh, so, I've never done so well, mostly because I invest by gut and whether I like or use the company. What are your tips on how to research a company? What markers should we be looking for or particular documents we should be reading? I guess the overall question is what should I be Googling when researching a company? And that's from Samantha. Doc, what say you?
1: Oh, that's so many questions in one. <laughs> yeah, it's, a one it? um, it's a good one. So, um, usually, a good place to look for a company is to look at sort of the company's primary documents. So the company has a pretty descriptive if the company has a pretty descriptive annual report, that's actually a really good place to look at mm. and understand what the business does. Uh, some companies don't have a pretty descriptive annual report um, in which case you would look at a set of company's half year. Uh, presentation or the company's full-year presentation. Maybe listen in on one of the conference calls that they do at the earnings, uh, when the earnings are released. Mm. That gives you a good sense of what the company does. Um, look up a database. Um, you know, we use cap- Capital IQ, but there are others that you could look at. Um, mm. Some free ones that will give you a description of what the business is. Yeah, I think what my basic point is: you need to know what the business is, and you need to know. Um, I guess. What is it the company does? How does the company make money? How does the company actually mm. grow? Mm. Um, you know, What are the key risk factors for the company? What are the opportunities in front of the company? Who are the company's customers? All those sort of questions are pretty high level things. Who are the leaders um, and things like that. Yeah. Um, once you do that, then I think you can look at sort of the balance sheet and you can look at the cash flows and the income statement and then try to understand, you know, how much money is coming through in through the door, how much debt have they got, you know, and things like that. So there's a there's a, there's a bit of a process uh, to doing that. Some of this you can do by searching on a search engine. Uh, I would not necessarily be using Google, but that's my preference. Um, <laughs> Naughty. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, I I I use Bing, but uh, <laughs> but you know, it's a personal preference for people. Um, so that that's what I would I would do. Um, nice. uh, otherwise, you know, I, this is not an advertisement, but you know, you could su- subscribe to one of our services. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and 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 then we would you know we would we we give you a very high level view. Uh, in we try to make it what we would without trying to sound. Um, uh, obnoxious, you know, we try to give sort of a very high level, easy to understand description of a business, what it does, why we like it, what are the opportunities ahead of it, what are the risks, and, and try to make it really accessible uh, in a concise format. That's something that we do, and that's a very unique way of of explaining the stock market to more and more and more people. Um, that's one approach, um, and that gives you a good starting point for doing further research, I would say. So those would be my thoughts.
0: Very nice, mate. I'm gonna. I, I love all those. I'm gonna take a different tack just for add, add something to it. Although I do agree with your idea that people should join our services. That's that's the very best, <laughs> very best advice. That of was course. not an
1: advertisement, <laughs> by
0: the way. So a couple of things I want to say, Samantha. The first is. I don't think you should avoid looking at the companies you use or like. Uh, Peter Lynch, I mentioned on Friday's podcast, um, he, he talks about he had this scuttlebutt approach. He would literally walk through the shopping center and see where you know the places people were shopping. Right, and if he saw one that was getting more traffic than used to or looked really busy, he'd say maybe I should go and look at that as an idea. So scuttlebutt is not the way you buy, but it certainly is a great starting point. If you've got companies you like or use. That's a great starting point because there's 2,000 companies on the ASX. If you can find something that's doing well or or, or performing nicely, or simply you look at it and you like the product or you you think people are using more of it, that's a great starting point. So don't get rid of that. Just do, as Doc's already said, some extra research on top of that and make sure that everyone else likes it as much as you do. They have a decent place in the market. They've got a reason to continue growing. Um, All that stuff is, is super important. The other thing I'd say, I know you've asked for tips about researching companies, I reckon, Samantha, I'd suggest that, and we can't give personal advice, but most people in your position should think about an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, as a starting point. If you've had a couple of losses, maybe you're, look, maybe you're resilient, you're bouncing back, and like, no, I'll get the next one. At some point, though, you start to get discouraged, think, oh, this investor thing isn't working. I'll go on and do something else with the money. So I would suggest have a think about some, some ETFs or an, an ETF, just as a way of diversifying your portfolio to give you some success, frankly. Particularly right now, I think ETFs are probably going to be a really good investment um, in terms of making money. Of the super long term, so no one knows what happens in the next three months or six months. But if you're putting money in the market, an ETF is a great starting point. So I'd start there, um, and then I think in terms of what to look for, uh, you know, Doc Doc's given a really really good summary. I think you just want to know where a company's at, what its future looks like, and to the extent you can find out. Um, the other thing I'd say for what it's worth is don't be too hard on yourself if a couple have gone badly. A, it's not a bad thing to start with. Some of the some of the worst investors I know, it's probably. A too broad a statement, but go with me. Are people who had who were successful the first time they invested, and convinced themselves they were gods, that they could do no wrong in investing, and they must have all the answers? Um, often making a mistake up front makes you a little bit more cautious when you start to deal with larger amounts of money down the track. The memory of that of those failures are are, are quite useful mental tips and tricks to kind of keep you on the straight and narrow. So, I, I would say I'd say do that. Don't avoid things you know and like. Make sure you diversify early, either with an ETF or just a range of companies. Um, and, and have a look at, Doc's, as Doc said, some of the financial statements and some of the stuff that will help you understand how well the company's performing. Uh, very last point, just for everybody, is no one in their right minds three months ago were saying, I'm going to look for companies that can survive six months of no cash flow because there might be a virus, right? So sometimes just stuff happens. Now, maybe you were wrong when you invested by gut. Maybe, you know, it's not a great way to invest generally, I would suggest anyway, but you know maybe you're just unlucky. And there's, you know, there's Doc and I both made plenty of investments that we put a whole lot of time and effort into that still went badly regardless. Um, now, on average, we do better than, we, than, than not. So that's also what you want to do. But remember, you're going to make mistakes anyway. And so some of those errors, maybe errors of judgment, I think gut only is probably not great, as I said, but sometimes things actually are Decent theses that just don't pan out the way we think. Any more on that, mate? No, sir. Beautiful. Question from Liam, dude. Hey, Philz, love the content and the continuous reinforcement to keep a cool head. We do that. I've been looking to increase exposure to the US during this time of uncertainty. I have a question regarding US ETFs listed on the ASX. Now, mate, this one isn't one about the currency in terms of at least, um, you know, the, the impact of it. We answered that before. This one is about, and this is a specific time and date, but the details are still useful. He says, overnight, the US NASDAQ fell 4.8%. However, during trading today on the ASX, and this was on the 19th of March, so it doesn't really matter, but, you know, the NASDAQ ETF is up 5%. So the US market was down 5 the NASDAQ was up 5%. is this the case? Is it because of the conversion rate dropping 50 to 56 cents, meaning the ETF rises in pricing? Or am I missing something? Full on Liam. Now, mate, I, I'm happy for you to have a go at this one. But I'm also, I, got a, I did email BlackRock about this one and actually get the information back from them. So uh, rather, rather than asking you to have a go and then give you the official answer, I might have a go at this one unless you have a particular thought.
1: Um I was going to I, I think I know the answer but All right. <laughs> but but uh, maybe I'm wrong <laughs> so I'll I'll take my let me take my, uh, my so the the two things that work here in, in concert yep. one is um number one is exchange rate comes into play yep. okay so if if stuff happens there and our exchange rate actually drops that gets reflected in the pricing so you know if something fell 5% the action might not f- fall by 5% here because yep. of the exchange rate. Number 2 what happens is and this is important is uh, when we are trading Nasdaq is actually closed. Yep. So you're looking at previous day's pricing, but Nasdaq futures are open. Yes. And therefore the futures actually give people an idea of how Nasdaq when it opens tomorrow is going to trade that gets factored in in today's trading. So, you know, it's a little bit of a hodgepodge thing but yeah to, to some extent that's what works but yeah uh, that's my guess maybe i'm right maybe i'm wrong but blackrock can confirm
0: you are spot on for most of it so um, no you're wrong there's just an extra concern or um, considerations so here's what they say for non-australian equity etfs in other words the nasdaq etf investors may in some cases see a different price compared to what they expect which is the question we got from liam the primary reason is that various markets are closed during asx trading hours As you said doc therefore the pricing of the etf is based on numerous data points such as the last close of the index currency movements and live futures pricing as you said which can trade whilst the asx is open the timing difference owing to these time zones between the net asset value and the australian prices will therefore impact the closing price of the etf and can cause noticeable differences in both the value and short-term performance of the net asset value and the asx price this difference is more noticeable with the recent increase in market volatility which I think we can completely agree with. So that's absolutely true. There is one more point that they make, and I think this is really worth thinking about for investors. There is someone, in this case BlackRock, who acts as what they call a market maker. So the ETF doesn't exist in any other kind of way. Well, so the ETF exists because BlackRock make a market for it. And what BlackRock is supposed to, or any, any ETF manager is supposed to do, is buy and sell at roughly the, almost exactly the same price, based on the underlying asset value. They should be able, they, they can and they should create new units to sell to people who want to buy. They don't have to find new buyers, they can create new units because they're just buying the equivalent assets in the US. So if there was 100 units before and they get another 10 people who want to buy units, you don't need to find 10 sellers. They will They will create those units for you by buying more US assets to match that demand. Similarly, if there's a whole lot of sellers, they can sell without having to find buyers because, again, the market maker will simply um, effectively cancel those units as they buy them from you, uh, so you can sell out and they just sell the equivalent holdings in the US that make up the ETF. That's all true, but because it's a manual process, you can get a demand imbalance from time to time. And so they say themselves, particularly at the closing auction, which is the last 15 minutes, the ASX orders close at four. And they have this thing called a closing auction to set the final prices between four and about 12 past four, Australian Eastern time, daylight saving or standard time, um, four o'clock here in Sydney. And they basically kind of just net off any outstanding orders to come up with a final price. If there's a meaningful in- imbalance in demand or supply at that point and BlackRock simply can't match it, there will be some movements at the end of the day. The same is also possibly true at the beginning of the day. So if you're going to buy a sell an ETF, we would always recommend doing it about well, no, no. Earlier than about twenty past ten, and preferably no later than about twenty to four, just to make sure you're not caught up with that imbalance at the time. So, look, that that's why they move differently. I don't think it's a big deal. You don't, don't need to be particularly worried about it, um, but that's certainly something to have a have a bit of a think about as you as you buy your ETFs, particularly those that are trading uh, that are that are matching or, or trading for overseas markets, but trading on the ASX. Well done, Doc. You nailed it. Almost impressive, dude.
1: Well, last part I didn't get.
0: It's <laughs> good. That was a part. All right, question from MB. MB doesn't say who he or she is, so g'day MB. I'm not sure it's not Mercedes Benz, but the rest is uh, open to open to, to question. MB says, "G'day Scotty. Well, I'm new to Instagram. This is my first post, and then adds a hashtag. What do you think the hashtag is, Doc?
1: Get someone on
0: Insta. <laughs> it is indeed hashtag Get Doc on Insta. I love it." Keep the hashtags going, fools. It amuses me. Just uh, That's all, really. It's not going to change anything. Doc is a, a is a, I was going to say stubborn man. He's not a stubborn man. He's a, he's a very, um, he's an independent thinker. He'll do exactly what he wants. So it probably won't have any impact, but I'm not giving up. I want him on Instagram just for fun. <laughs> he says, I'm a subscriber to Extreme Opportunities, which is Doc service, and love the podcast and the easy-to-digest content you both give. Thank you. My content is for the Doc, but love your thoughts as well, Scott. Doc previously said if banks were to the end of the eights for PEs, he'd be snapping them up. As of today, they are. With the recent RBA cut, is this still the case? And if so, which do you both believe offer the best long-term value? Love your work, full on MB. Now, mate, you answered a question, almost the same question on Friday. So this is a question, I assume, in the last half-hour hour, since we recorded the last podcast, if view has not changed on banks at eight, a PE of eight. But what I thought I would ask you is the second part of that question is, um, which do you both believe offer the best long-term value? If I made you buy a bank right now, which bank would you buy?
1: Uh, so you're basically putting a gun to my head.
0: A virtual or, gun. virtual I'm not, gun? Yeah, not, uh, um, nothing. Yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not that sort of bloke. Uh,
1: I don't know, maybe ANZ or uh, you, you know what? I need to look. I need to see at which one is basically the cheapest on book value basis.
0: Book value, not earnings, book value. Yeah. Okay.
1: Because, uh, you know, I'd like to buy them at like point 0.8 or something, okay. 0.75 of book value fully realizing that the book value is going to probably get written down or something <laughs> like that but yeah that's sort of that's my ballpark I have to buy a bank so okay. not based really on earnings I mean eight times earnings the problem with the earnings thing is uh, eight times earnings on a normal scenario yep. is probably pretty cheap yep. but we're not in a normal scenario so this, <laughs> this what looks like eight times earnings probably is going to be more like 15 times earnings Um, mm. you know when the earnings roll out so uh, but, but on a book value basis. If it's something is cheaper on a book value basis, then that might be interesting actually. But I haven't looked at it recently. That's so,
0: fascinating. Okay, so I would, have, I would have taken an earnings basis, I have to say, but I would take exactly the same approach as you. I think banks are going to roughly hang together as a group. Uh, and I mean, look, you know, Westpac and NAB have a slightly bigger business bank than commonwealth which is more home residential mortgages so you might take a you might take a slight you know view about that if you kind of wanted to if you wanted to have a little bit less relatively speaking but the reality is those increments aren't super meaningful to the overall returns if you like the banking sector or you want to be exposed to the banking sector i expect they'll all move roughly in close enough to win tandem. And even if they don't, the chance of us being able to guess in advance which one's going to beat the other is really, really small because they kind of all provide the same services to the same people at roughly the same prices. There's just nothing to to separate them rationally, logically from an analytical perspective. Again, it doesn't mean they can't move. Um, It just means they, you know, it's hard to know which one. And so if you're putting the odds in your favor, um, the best option, I think, I, I agree with Doc, is to just simply go the cheapest one. I... I'm fascinated with your book value idea, Matt. I hadn't, hadn't thought that through. Um, we did say the other day that, you know, in, in the good times, banks are valued on earnings. In the bad times, they're valued on, on book value. That may well be a, the right approach. I'd have to have another think about how I feel about the overall sector. I mean, at some level, as you say, um, if there's a bailout required or, or there is some significant pain, that's probably going to be felt by them all. I guess I'd probably have to think about, you know, am I, am I looking for safety or upside? I, I think I think I would still probably go for earnings, I think. Uh, but but book value would probably minimise your chance of disruption because the the one with the the, the highest discount, discounted book value is probably the one least likely to need a bailout, though I have to feel like there might be other measures, maybe qualitative measures, but with quantitative numbers, if that makes sense, uh, that might tell us a bit more about the bank's need potential need for cash. So I might even look like look at things like leverage levels and, and equity as a proportion of the loan book, for example, and I might use that rather than pure book value to try and pick one.
1: So as a, while you were talking, I was looking at book value, so I would not touch CBA. Okay. It's at 1.6 times tangible book value. Okay,
0: um, Which is not unusual, by the way, but your, your point is in this sort of environment. Well,
1: I would like to buy CBA at like 0.5 book value, <laughs> 0.6 book value. So
0: it falls by, by two-thirds, you'll buy it. Is that you telling yeah, me?
1: That, that, well, I'd consider it at that point. A and Z is at... Point eight, which yep. is uh, maybe it's actually interesting. Maybe Westpac is at point eight or point nine, mm-hmm. and yeah, point nine. And Nab, I'll just have a quick look. Probably is around the same. So I actually of the lot. Yeah, NAB is at point eight. So, so actually, those three. So, the mm. one that looks expensive to me is CBA. Yeah. Um, definitely expensive at one point six versus the rest. The rest actually is at interesting territory, uh, at that point seven point eight. I mean, a couple of things could happen. Like, I mean, you know, these guys could get re-rated and nothing happens. These guys go back to trading at one point five times book value. Um, mm. you know, and maybe at the same time, ComBank goes to be trading at two times book value. But mm-hmm. yeah, it looks like there's more downside to the Com comeback
0: valuation I tend to agree um, I, I mean see valuations are hard right and this is the thing where, you know just because we want to be rational doesn't I mean the market is CBA has always been at a premium to other banks for for whatever reason the, the market has seen fit to do that rational or otherwise um, and to some degree whether that gap ever gets closed is more of a function of kind of market confidence and sentiment than, than actual kind of <laughs> results um, or, or, or purely analytical numbers so it's always, it's always hard right there's always been businesses CSL's one that's always traded at a stupid high multiple but has always done that right. So if you'd avoided it, and I did, because the multiple's too high, you miss on the you missed out on the gains on the way through. Now maybe that maybe that standardizes at some point. Maybe it never does. Um, but that's the game you're playing. I, I agree, Matt A combo Bank wouldn't be top of my list. Um, I'd be definitely going for the other banks. I think there's more there's more potential value there. Um, again though if the gap never closes then they, again you can still treat them all as as one unit and throw a blanket over them. But if you believe that particularly if there's one I wouldn't tell you I wouldn't have go to my way to avoid the most expensive one per se. But I would go out of my way to choose the cheapest one, just on the basis of some degree of mean reversion. That it's probably unlikely it remains as cheap or the cheapest forever. These two tend to move positions a little bit, like the like the major news networks, with the television networks with their ratings. You know, they tend to move around, and if you're going to kind of buy her, sell high, buy low, uh, that tends to be good, relatively speaking, for the for the for the um, the TV networks and probably for the banks as well. Any more on that, bud?
1: Oh, I'll just say this, you know, the current economic environment, uh, job losses, um, you know, the high debt to disposable income, um, all of those things. This is not a good environment for residential banks with a lot of residential exposure, (laughs) uh, banks with SMB exposure. So, yeah,
0: yeah. That much is true. All right. Last question, mate, for now, is from Dion. Hi, Scott. I have a question for the podcast. Hope this is the right way to submit it. It is indeed, Dion. Dear Scott and Doc, I'm a new investor and have over the last six months, I've been slowly putting money into the stock market. Excellent. My end goal is to have an even spread of Aussie and US ETFs with some exposure to emerging markets and a few single stocks. But now the AUD is so weak against other currencies, is it a good idea to throw all of my money into the Australian market only and over the next few years balance things out by putting all investments into overseas markets when the dollar hopefully strengthens? Or will this come at a huge opportunity cost? Thanks for all you do. Dion, I love that we're getting lots of these um, currency questions, people looking to invest overseas, certainly something we've been talking about for a very long time, which is great. So again, we've answered some of these types of questions. This time I want to, again, take the last bit of the question to separate it out and answer from a slightly different perspective. You mentioned dollar cost averaging. Um, To some degree, I want to talk about the opportunity cost of the dollar strengthening in the context. Maybe I've I've got probably a point to make. You You may agree I have a different point, but the, the thing that stuck out to me for this question was that the unfortunate reality of being Australian and owning Australian dollars is that generally the currency and US markets tend to kind of operate in the same direction. So the time at which you're getting the best exchange rate tends to be times when the US stock market is also doing well. And you know equally, when the NASDAQ is down... Or the US markets are down generally, also tends to be a time when the Australian dollar is down. So you kind of go, the, there's no time that I can remember getting a really easy free kick on this one because of that reality that, you know, when, when the US markets are down stock market wise, that's the time when US traders and US fund managers want their money back and buying US dollars pushes down the Australian dollar, which is what we've seen over the last little while. Is there a strategy around, you know, the opportunity cost you talk about? I don't think that there is one, at least not a huge one on, on, a, on, a, on a total market level. Because of the fact that the stock market and the Australian dollar, unfortunately, tend to work in the same direction.
1: Um, Yeah, so on this one, I I think if you were... So, here's the thing, right? I think the general market overall, probably across different countries, would work similarly right within the ballpark right uh so whatever that number is you know eight nine ten percent or seven percent whatever you think is the future returns you're probably going to get in that ballpark so from that point of view, if you're just investing in etfs with broad market exposure Mm. then maybe you should consider currency now the difference i'd make is if you're investing something like, like the nasdaq 100 that's that is an index but it is a different very different very tech heavy so you you're buying something different. You're buying a different type of exposures and therefore maybe currency is less of an issue. But if you're buying like right, you know, right, MC, right. MCI Global 2000 or something like that,
0: yeah.
1: um, then you're basically buying market returns, yeah, right? And then maybe you should consider this this algorithm of saying, well, I want to invest more in Australia because, well, yeah. I mean, you know, maybe I'm going to be actually pulled down by currency. The, the other, usually... I think becomes even more complicated when you think about emerging assets.
0: <laughs> because it really does.
1: Because when something like this, for example, what's going on right now?
0: Yeah.
1: All stock markets are down. Yep. But uh, maybe in a, maybe in a relative basis actually still not that bad. So because if it's uh, in, maybe there's an advantage here being Australian is maybe this Australian mm. to say emerging market currency basket mm. is not as queued as it would be to the you know as maybe in some other context because em- em- emerging countries get hit harder so therefore you actually get a currency benefit okay in in you know typically when something bad like this happens emerging countries are hit <laughs> exactly. it's significantly worse, right, right 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 so their, yeah, yeah, their, yeah. so their currency takes a hit yeah, yeah. Um, even the economies actually take a hit yes so and the, and therefore the stock market responds um, and, and therefore maybe it's actually so you could weigh at this point uh mm. some cash to mm. emerging markets but the problem with that too is that you have to really know which which sort of you know what sort of exposure you want to do mm. which countries do you want to focus on do you want to take a broad basket approach you know you want to buy an emerging market uh, sort of index, or you want to go for specific countries and things yep. like that. So, yep. I mean, there's a whole heap of consideration um, <laughs> yeah. involved. But yeah, but for broad market in- index, actually what he's saying, I kind of agree with that. Right. Makes sense. Uh, where I disagree is if you're doing individual companies or doing very specific yeah. ETFs, yeah. I think what happens there is then you're you're making more direct bets, and, and, and then, then I think it's a different thing. But if you're doing a broad market
0: index, yep. then, yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I would almost go back to your original answer, Doc, which is just that idea of dollar cost averaging, right? I don't think I'd try and be too clever now necessarily. Um, I, I think it, it, it's it's that mental model, right? You almost need to line up the currency and the expected returns from each op- option, and, and just try and try and just mentally kind of handicap the investment option depending on where you're making it based on where the dollar is currently, and just kind of have that have that conversation. I agree with you on emerging markets. mate. emerging has been supposed to be the next big thing for 20 15 years hasn't got there yet uh developed markets have been so incredibly strong now that's a great opportunity now it would have been five years ago and still wouldn't have done very well so is it an opportunity now or not i don't really know it, it's hard it's, I, I find this really really difficult there are some wonderful businesses in america um we had the question earlier you know what are you buying now it was directed to me i know you bought some last week um i've i've really struggled to exchange money at the current exchange rate it's just it's just really hard to do now it's 64 Five cents, I'd be a lot keener. Um, again, because I think that's within the range of. Yeah, you know, I'm a long-term investor. I hope to have. And here's the thing, right? Even if I sell the my US shares, I, at some point, I probably leave the money in US dollars anyway. So the conversion doesn't have to happen at the same time as the share sale, which is just a really big benefit in terms of, you know, not not kind of letting you reinvest that money in US dollars at that same point anyway. So sending it over at a different time when you buy the shares would be great if you didn't have to wait years for that to be at, to happen or to be the case. But if you can find great investment ideas that are more than offsetting the currency, then you should take them wherever they are. Um, if they're not sufficiently large, then another alternative might be the best one to, to make. I think that's probably my best thought. Any other thoughts on that one, mate? No, sir. Beautiful. Mate, I reckon we're done for this Sunday. What do you think? I think that's great. Beautiful. So, fools, thank you very much for listening to this special mailbag edition. We may have a special interview for you this week coming, by the way. So, hasn't yet been teed up. But I don't want to say too much, uh, but keep keep listening. Keep the. If you, of course, you've subscribed by now. But if you haven't yet, now is a great time to do it so you don't miss the podcast when it drops. You wouldn't want to miss that, would you? And of course, before we go, don't forget you can and should subscribe to that very podcast through iTunes or through your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, give us a rating, leave us some stars, tell your friends, share, at a social distance, of course, but share, help other people get through this tough time, maybe with a bit of fun and a bit of education, a bit of finance insight. If we can, can we say we gave people insight? I think we can today. Oh, yeah. We did okay. Yeah, yeah. some yeah. insights, right. some insights. <laughs> some, some, has that? That's not bad for free. Yeah, that's a, free. That's a, good, that's a good deal. And of course, if you are looking the interaction between podcast episodes, follow us on the socials. Jump on Facebook, The Motley Fool Australia or I'm Scott Phillips Money. You can do it on Instagram at The Motley Fool AU or TMF Scott P. And if you want to get Doc, there is only one way to get to Doc and it is via the Twitters. He is at Anirban Mahanti. I'm at TMF Scott P. Or you can get our corporate account at The Motley Fool AU. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money special mailbag episode. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.